Sometimes sin looks good. Sometimes sin looks good. I mean, imagine if every bad choice came with a warning, like the skull and bones on it, you know, like this is going to harm you. This is going to kill you. Like navigating life would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? It would be much easier. Like sometimes we wish we lived in one of those old cartoons that were popular when I was a wee lad, right? Where it's like you're in the, you know, they're looking at all this medicine and they have the skull and bones and the guy reaches for that. It's like, no, that one's not for you. It'd be nice if those decisions had like this, you know, kind of caveat. Listen, you can, you can participate in this, but it'll kill you. Or it's going to cause big problems. It's going to wreak havoc. If you, if, you, if you walk this road, you'll incur the judgment of God. No, it's not like that. Sin sometimes looks pretty. It's camouflaged as good or pleasing or satisfying or necessary. You see, this, is, this has been the issue even since the garden in, in Eden. Remember in Genesis 3, as the serpent crafty there, right? That satanic deception of Eve. Did God really say not to eat of that fruit? And Eve explains, kind of. And the serpent says, no, you, you will... Will not surely die, or you will surely not die. This fruit will satisfy you. And then it's really interesting in verse 6 in chapter 3 of Genesis, you know, the, the, the text describes Eve going, Yeah, it looks good. It looks pleasing. Listen, sin sometimes looks good. And part of following Jesus today is learning to see through sin's camouflage or to see through sin's disguise. Part of following Jesus today means learning to see past the lies and the seduction of sin. And believe it or not, to help us today, God has given us a glimpse of the future judgment of the world. That's what we find here in these chapters in Revelation after chapter 16. So with 17 and 18, we kind of focus in on that final judgment. And the question is, well, why does this matter? Especially if it's written to Christians, why does it matter to us? Why did it matter to those first century believers? Why does it matter to us today? If we're going to be protected from this judgment by faith in Jesus, then, then why, do we, why do we dwell on it so much? But the fact is, this passage and others like it, they help us because it prepares us to say no to temptation in the meantime. It's almost like Revelation 17 is a warning to unbelievers, for sure, of judgment, but maybe primarily it's a warning to believers. Don't be gullible. Don't don't be easily seduced or easily deceived by sin when it's dressed up. It may look shiny, but boy, it will cost you. Now, as we come to a chapter like this in the Bible, it's really important we kind of orient ourselves to where this fits inside of uh, the plan of redemption that God has for us. So if we think about it in terms of the cross, right, uh, here in Revelation, we're obviously getting a preview to the end and the final consummation of completion of God's plan of redemption. The, the book of Revelation already presupposes that Jesus has died for our sins and risen from the dead. And so just so we're all clear this morning, that's the good news. The good news is that sinners have hope of forgiveness, a sure hope of forgiveness, by trusting in Jesus alone, because he died for your sins and rose from the dead. So we have that hope there already referred to in Revelation as we see Jesus, the lamb who was slain to rescue sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Absolutely. 
But in light of the fact that we maybe have come to faith in Jesus, the question is, okay, well, how do we live for him now today? Because we're right in the middle of it. We're right in the middle of the struggle. As we were singing, these are tumultuous times. We do face storms. And a passage like Revelation 17, it actually directs us to to freedom from sin. That freedom from sin that Jesus has purchased us, purchased for us. So if we think about it, Jesus died, yes, to forgive us of our sins. But he also died to free us from slavery to sin. So we can now live and we can say no to temptation. Now listen, we're going to get to the end where, praise God, there's a day coming when there is no temptation to say no to. Are you looking forward to that? Man, I hope you are. I mean, it, it, that's, listen, we, we want that desperately. But in the meantime, just like those believers in Asia Minor in the first century, right, we do face temptation. And sin, well, sin gets dressed up, and it looks good. And so you have to be, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to be on your game, ready to see through that disguise. Jesus died to give you freedom from sin right now. The question is, where are you vulnerable? Where are you likely to say yes to that temptation? Where are you easily deceived? And you maybe know it, and you're glad to be deceived. Because, boy, it just looks so good. Well, let's go through chapter 17 here. We'll unpack these details, and then we'll ask, how does this help us today? So, starting in verse 1. Now, there's, there's a lot of imagery here that we're going to have to unpack, but just work with me. It gets pretty clear once we have the big pieces in place. In chapter 17, verse 1, John writes, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. Okay, so we pause verse 1. Chapter 16, we had the seven angels with the seven bowls or saucers that are filled with the judgment of God. And in chapter 16, those bowls have been poured out one after the other. And so we've got this visionary representation of God's judgment of the world in rebellion against him. And so that's kind of, chapter 16 is like, this is it, boom, here it is. And then in chapter 17 and 18, there's kind of like the, the camera zooms in a little bit. And we kind of go back and we just focus in a little bit on this judgment what are we actually talking about here? What does this look like? Particularly in, re- in regards to culture, society, and nations. Right? What are we talking about? And so here, one of those seven angels circles back with John and says, okay, let's unpack this. Let me, let me, let me show you uh, the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now, there's, especially in the first six verses here, there's a lot of reference to sexual immorality those references are actually a picture not just of sexual immorality, but those are actually a metaphor, an Old Testament prophetic metaphor for any kind of idolatry. So in the Old Testament, there was, the idea is that God is in relationship to his people as like a marriage relationship. And anytime his people are unfaithful to him, they are basically spitting in his face. They're, they're trashing the covenant, right? They're like turning their back on him and being unfaithful, right? So that, that's Old Testament prophetic language. And here it's carried on right into the book of Revelation. So as we see kind of a, an ugly presentation here, you'll see there's an intentionality to that. We're meant to say, oh, wow, that's the notorious prostitute. Yeah, that doesn't, she does need to be judged, right? More on the many waters in a minute. Watch verse 2. 
the kings of the earth followed this, this notorious evil woman. So they committed sexual immorality with her. And those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Whatever this wicked woman was selling, they were buying. That's the idea. And again, this is a metaphor for idolatry. So this wicked woman, and this wicked woman, as she comes to represent culture that stands in opposition to God, she's out selling this idolatry. And people in any nation are happy to buy what she is selling. And they're drunk on this idolatry. They're obsessed with it. It's their drug. They've got to have it. And so verse 3, Then he, the angel, carried John away. He carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now listen, Green Pond Bible Chapel, if you're driving on 287 and you see a scandalous woman on a beast with seven heads and ten horns, do not pull over. <laughs> Just keep driving. You know, in these visions, what's going on? Well, again, it'd be nice if in life we had the warning signs. Stay away. If that's a dragon. Stay away from that one, right? But you know what? She's dressed up to look pretty. This beast, we'll find out, is either the, the beast of chapter 13 or possibly a combination of the dragon, Satan, and the beast. And we'll see the, you know, there's a combination of features there. It, whatever it is, as you know, some theologians have said in the past, it ain't good. Okay? This is a negative image. Go on to verse 4, though. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, pretty colors, expensive colors. She's adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She looked good. She looked pretty. She had a golden cup in her hand. Here, come and drink. This will satisfy you. I know you've had a long week at work. I know you've got problems with your kids. I know that there's issues in your finances. I know that the politics are going crazy. Here, drink this. This will help. This will soothe you. And she looks good and the cup looks good. But what's in that cup? Everything detestable, says the CSB, and it's filled with the impurities of her prostitution. You see, sin, sometimes it looks good. And we're deceived. Lest we miss the point in the vision, everything's made really clear. Watch verse 5. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery. So just in case we didn't get the image yet, right? She is Babylon the Great. It's stamped on her forehead. The mother of prostitutes, not a positive image, and of the detestable things of the earth. The mystery is not that she's a bad guy. The mystery is, how has she continued to be successful age to age? Now, she is Babylon. That's what we find out. She's Babylon the Great. What in the world are we talking about here? Babylon the Great. Well, in the Old Testament, the nation Babylon historically was an enemy of Israel, God's people, and therefore an enemy of God. 
And actually, God used Babylon to judge Israel for her sin. And, and the nation of Babylon carried the southern kingdom into captivity in the Old Testament. It's a major plot line in the Old Testament of how that all happens. So in the Old Testament, Babylon becomes to, it just comes to be synonymous with rebellion against God, okay? That's kind of how, you know, it, it developed as far as just a, a prophetic reference, okay? So we get here, and Babylon continues to represent rebellion against God, organized culturally, society-wise, like this is a, a, the, the posture of society and culture in rebellion against God. We don't want to follow God. In the first century, Babylon was Rome. Babylon was Rome. It was government, society, culture, customs, habits, religion, all of it together, and it was all postured against God. It was postured towards idolatry, right? In fact, uh, in ancient Rome, the goddess Roma, right, was depicted in statues and in art as the the representative of the, the empire. And she was always envisioned to be beautiful. Rome is pretty. Rome is glorious. Rome is good. There's like a, a weird, you know, religious patriotism here that was, was happening in the first century. And in fact, believers in the first century, they would have struggled because to trust in Jesus meant saying no to the gods and goddesses of, of the Roman Empire, but it also meant saying no to worshiping the emperor. It also meant saying no to being involved in activities that were associated with worship of the emperor and worship of the gods and goddesses, which in Roman culture was really hard to do. It was hard to, to not participate in those feasts. They were the primary holidays. They were the primary ways you, you let off steam with your neighbors and enjoyed a day off work or whatever. And Christians were finding, wait, they're called to worship Jesus alone. So there was this awkwardness in the culture, like, oh, well, now what do we do? And you know what? There were some Christians who were tempted to say, you know what? Roma's not that bad. I know you worship the emperor and all that weirdness. I don't really do that. And I know that we don't worship Apollo and Jupiter and all those, you know. Yeah, we don't do that. But, I mean, it's, she's not that bad. I mean, I, I got to keep my job. So at least I got to go. I mean, I got to go for at least a little while to the festival. And just, you know, I'll, I'll just, I won't, you know, participate in the bad stuff. I'll just, you know, be around. I, but, I mean, really, she's not that bad. In the vision, she's depicted as horrific, the mother of all evil. And so really, there's nowhere to hide in this vision. Now, in the Old Testament, Babylon, a culture organized around rebellion against God, enemy of Israel, Babylon in the first century certainly is a reference to Rome. We'll see that, by the way, is made abundantly clear in the rest of the chapter that it's Rome. So Babylon was Rome for sure, you know, religion, a government, society. But if you fast forward 2,000 years, what's Babylon? And really, it just depends on where you live. But, and here's the scary part. Any culture where the government and society is not entirely submitted to the Lord Jesus could be said to be Babylon. Folks, we live in Babylon. And sometimes sin looks good. Sometimes we're deceived about the nature of our society. And just in case we've missed the point about just the initial introduction of this wicked woman, watch verse 6. What does this have to do with Christians? Isn't, can't we just be neutral? Like, 
Isn't there some neutral ground? Watch verse 6. Then I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. The woman is happy to see the church suffer. Now, that doesn't mean every person in Rome was happy to see the church suffer, or every person in Babylon was happy to see the people of God suffer, or every person today living in a culture like ours that doesn't follow Jesus, they're not all happy to see the church suffer. But as a system, right, on the whole, the design of the whole thing is leaning away from God, and we live in that, in that culture. And ultimately, this rebellion against God, it, it can never be categorized as neutral. In fact, we'll see Satan has a very clear agenda he's trying to accomplish through culture and government even and society. But man, that verse 6 is sobering because it just says, Hey Christian, if you think you can flirt with Roma and get away with it, if you think you can flirt with Babylon and it's going to be okay, just remember that she drinks the blood of the saints. And yes, there were Christian martyrs in Rome in the first century, but there have been many since. You see, the the big idea here in chapter 17 is in a sin-soaked culture like Babylon, like Rome, or like the United States, in a sin-soaked culture, be distinct. Be different. You could say, be holy. In a sin-soaked culture, be distinct. First of all, because sin is seductive. You've just got to be aware that sin is, is deceitful and wicked, and Satan will disguise it, and he'll make it look good to you. And what looks good to you may not look good to others, but he'll make it look good to you. And you just got to know, sin is, distinct, is distinctively seductive. It is after you, trying to trick you and trap you. You know... When we choose idolatry, you're choosing Babylon. And really, I think part of the vision is to sober up Christians to say, listen, when you're choosing to give into that temptation, you're drinking from her cup. Like the cup full of the detestable things, like you're drinking from that cup. So don't play your sin down and act like, well, it's not that big of a deal. It is that big of a deal. And so there's this warning function here in this passage calling us to be distinct in a culture that's saturated with sin. You know, when we choose idolatry, we're choosing satisfaction that's based on a lie. Did you know that? That sin is constantly making promises it can't keep? It is. We can just go back to the garden again. You know, Satan's arguing with Eve. Listen, you got to eat this fruit. You got to eat this fruit. It's going to... It's going to satisfy you. It's going to be everything you thought it would be and more. You're going to love it. Short version. It did not. It did not satisfy Adam and Eve. It did not bring them to the heights of pleasure that they were seeking. It did not give them some kind of eternal status that they couldn't have gotten otherwise. I mean, it, it didn't. It did not work and it does not work. Listen, sin will make promises to you, Right? It will make promises to you. It will say, oh, yeah, just, you know what? I know you've had a rough time and all that. You just let's, you know what? You've earned it. Just go to the bar and just drink this weekend of the past. That's what you do. Because if you get drunk 
and have fun getting drunk and forgetting about your problems, then everything's going to be better. And you'll feel better and everything will be better. That is a lie. It doesn't work. Or you think, oh yeah, you know what? If I just could get sexual satisfaction right now, I, I need that right now. And I know God's called me to pursuing that in marriage, but you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to chase it in another form. And you know what? Everybody else is doing it. I mean, so what's the big deal? It doesn't look so bad, right? And that'll make me happy and that will bring me satisfaction. Of course, it does not. Or the money. You know, if you just earned a little bit more, then you could finally be at peace about your situation. If you just got that raise, get that other job that pays more, because then you could get the nicer house. And you know, if you had the nicer house, then you'd really finally be able to, your family, your kids would behave, you know, if they had the nicer house, right? Yeah. But you know, well, if, because the, but the nicer house and the car, right? But if you have the car, if you had a bigger car and you all weren't so close to each other, then like, then it would be better. And you, do, you would do better and easier. And then, but if it was a German car, they definitely will do better because, you know, I don't know, but because like, that's why. So that's why you get one of those. And, and if you, you see, that's the lie. And we're, we're all chuckling because we've all seen the commercials. And we all live the reality of it. But the fact is we believe it. And we orient our lives around earning more money because we think if we had the bigger house and we lived in the right neighborhood and we had the right car, well, then all the, we'd have all the needs would be met. And we'd, it's a lie. It's a lie. We could go on. The career obsession, the educational degrees, whatever. It's not that those things aren't good gifts, but the, the, the issue is that we put a burden on them that they can never fulfill. And Satan does it on purpose. The culture has bought the lie. You might think, and maybe this is one of those primary lies that's in every moment of temptation, but you might think, God wants me to be happy. And so, that means I should be able to do what I want. That's how we actually interpret that phrase. God wants me to be happy. In that sentence, happiness means God wants me to have what I want to have. So I know he's said this in his word. I know he's called me to that. And I know he called me to be distinct. But you know what? God, ultimately, God wants me to be happy. And that trumps everything else he said. And so he wants me to have what I want. It's a lie. The lie is not in the sentence, though. The lie is in how we understand it. Brothers and sisters, can I just encourage you? Seven, Revelation 17, 1 to 6 means God does want you to be happy. He does. But you know what my friend Thomas Brooks says? You know Thomas Brooks. Late 1600s. Beloved pastor. Thomas Brooks in 1662 wrote a book on this. And the title's super long, so I'm not going to bore you with it. But here's what he said. Holiness differs from happiness, but in name. I'll translate. Holiness is another name for happiness. You see, God wants me to be happy, so I should just do whatever I want. No, no, no. God wants you to be happy, and that's why he's called you to be holy. That's why he's called you to say no to this wicked woman, Roma, Babylon, right? Whatever, whoever she is, right? When she's saying to you, oh, come and drink from this cup, you think, oh, I want to be happy, which means I want to be holy. And so in a sin-soaked culture, the calling is be distinct, Say no. You see, 
when we could go with the crowd, or when we do go with the crowd, we're just drinking from the cup of Babylon. And we've got to call it what it is. So I just want to maybe encourage you with a biblical view of culture this morning, okay? So we're both optimistic and pessimistic about our culture, right? On the one hand, God has placed us in our culture for his glory. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But listen, God loves sinners, and God has has done an incredible work to rescue sinners from their sin in the mission of Jesus. And so we are optimistic about the, the, the growth of the church in any culture and about God's kingdom and growing. So we're optimistic about that. However, at the same time, we're also pessimistic about our culture because our culture is, on the whole, is a bucket of idolatry, right? It's leaning away from Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't have certain government officials that love Jesus. We do, praise God. But our, our, our society is not united around submission to Jesus and pursuit of the glory of God as a central focus of our life. So our culture, we have to be pessimistic about the culture. We live in Babylon. We just have to call it what it is. But when we go with the crowd and we don't stop and think, does this honor Jesus, brothers and sisters, we're drinking from that golden cup. And it's ugly. It's dressed up to look pretty, but it's really ugly. And in fact, the end that our culture is headed for is very ugly. Watch verse 7 as we continue. And now there's explanation of the images. So verse 7, Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? And you shouldn't be surprised, John. Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. Okay, explain away. Verse 8, The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast that was, and is not, and is to come. If you just pause here, the idea with this beast, again, the beast is either the same beast from chapter 13, the sea beast, or it's a, it's a, a conflation, a a merging together of the dragon and the beast. But either way, the idea is this. The beast is a parody, a false god, right? And we know it's a parody of Jesus because Jesus is described in Revelation as the one who was and is and is to come. Revelation 1 verse 4 and 1 verse 8. So we have this recognition that that's the identity of Jesus, the eternal God, right, uh, who has come to earth to rescue us and who is coming again. Well, here the beast is a parody on that, pretending to be God, pretending to be worthy of worship, okay? And the fact is, those who live on the earth whose names are not written in the book of life, any unbeliever, as nice as they may be, right? And as as much as God may graciously allow them to live lives that are not as wicked as they could be, every unbeliever worships this beast. That's where it is. So it's like, oh, wow. And I think probably most likely the beast here is, you know, represents this systemic leaning away from God. And the world is happy to follow that leadership. They're astonished, blown away. Wow, Rome. You know, Rome was infatuated with its own glory in its heyday. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And again, we can talk about the blessings that God has gifted to us to live in a country with religious freedom, which it is a blessing. But just be careful that that recognition of the time and place that we live being a blessing doesn't turn into patriotic idolatry, where we worship Roma in the version of the United States of America. 
he says in verse 9, this calls for a mind that has wisdom. You got to discern. In a sin-soaked world, be distinct. You got to discern. You got to be paying attention. Now, just in case we were missing it, he says the seven heads, the angel explaining here, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And there are also seven kings. For those of you that aren't up on your, your Roman history, Rome is the city built on how many hills? Anybody remember? Remember? Seven. Seven hills. So this verse 9 makes it abundantly clear Babylon is meant to be associated with Rome, right? So we get it. So just so we're all on the same page. But the seven heads represent the seven hills. They also represent seven kings, possibly seven emperors. Now, before you start Googling Roman emperors, here's the deal. There's not a lot of clarity as to which emperors this is exactly referring to. And so I just would maybe encourage you that we just don't know with a lot of clarity. Because of that, however, we still get the main idea of where these emperors are leading culture. So we're talking about leaders of culture here. So where is this all going to go ultimately? Well, he explains in verse 10, five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain only for a little while. That may be a reference to Nero, but we don't know for sure. So just, again, I would maybe caution you on that. But verse 11, the beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king, but it belongs to the seventh. And here's the most important part there at the end of verse 11 about the beast and these kings and all that. The beast is going to destruction. Babylon is going down. The system will be judged. The, the, the culture of humanity that leans away from God and rebellion to God and leans towards worship of self, worship of these false gods, it will come to nothing. It will be destroyed. That's where this is going. Verse 12, the ten, probably ten vassal kings in the Roman Empire, but watch it. The ten horns, maybe ten other kings you, are, you saw are ten kings, possibly lesser kings who have not yet received a kingdom but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Not that long is the idea. So there are going to be, there are going to be vassal states under you know, this, this culture united together in rebellion against God. And they're going to think, oh, the best thing we can do is hitch our wagon to the beast. We can hitch our wagon to this authority, whether it's a Roman emperor or whether it's an American president or whether, whoever it is. We're going to hitch our wagon to this beast and we're going to, because that's where we'll get power and authority because they have all the money. They control all the laws. They control the Supreme Court. They control uh, the, the military. So they're the ones we're going to hitch our, our wagon to. And the point is that alliance only is beneficial for one hour. It is short-lived. It seems like a good play in the long run, but remember, sin is seductive. So it's one hour. They're going down. It's not going to last. Verse 13. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. All these kings, all these emperors, all these rulers, they're being manipulated by Satan to lead humanity away from the Lord. That is their purpose. It does not mean every king or emperor or every president or every senator intends to do that. It means that that's what they are being used to do. So we just have to call it what it is. They're, they're leading people away from the Lamb. And they're giving that their power and authority to the beast. And then verse 14. These, these kings, this culture, these will make war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will conquer them. And watch it. Because He, you can almost read there in the grammar, only He, is Lord of Lords. 
and king over all kings. And those with him are called chosen, or excuse me, those with him are called chosen and faithful. You see, in a sin-soaked culture, our calling is to be distinct. First, because sin is seductive, that's a thing. But second, because sinners ultimately will be judged. If we try to take this neutral position, if we try to play nice with Roma, with Babylon, and drink from the golden cup, it may, may indicate that we've never belonged to the Lamb at all. And when push comes to shove on the day when earth unites in rebellion against Jesus, and they wage war with the Lamb, they'll do so at their own destruction, or to accomplish their own destruction, because the Lamb will conquer them. Because as much as these kings of emperors of Rome and as much as kings of nations and as much as presidents and prime ministers think that they have power and authority, you know, it's so funny in our our presidential election, we always talk about how this is going to be the most influential, powerful person on earth, right? And on the one hand, practically speaking, I get what we're saying there, but let's just make no mistake. There's only one king over all kings. There's only one Lord over all lords. And he is the Lamb. And in this climactic ultimate battle, that's what's being referred to here again. It was referenced in chapter 16, where it's talked about again here. In this climactic final battle, it's not even close. The lamb wins. Babylon is going down. The question is, are you going down with her, right? That's the question. In a sin so culture, be distinct. Now, probably verse 14 alludes to uh, the fruit of the Antichrist's work, which that's referenced in a couple other places in the Bible, 1 John chapter 2 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where there's a, a leader who leads the world in rebellion. That's probably what's going on here. But listen, don't get caught up in the details. And listen, people want to tell you the details. They want to tell you the Antichrist is so-and-so. And see, this nation made an alliance with this nation. That's le-. Listen, just say, everybody calm down. The whole thing's going down, Okay. So it, it's, not, it's not about the who's and the what's and the X's and O's and the nations, okay? The whole thing is going down, all right? That's the message. And realizing where idolatry leads, right, that actually is the key for you and for me today to rejecting it. So because we know where this is all going, that empowers you, Christian, that empowers you to say no to that temptation. So back to the other example. I had a rough week. I'm going to go drink my woes away at the bar on Friday night. But then all of a sudden you go, wait a minute. I know where that's going. That's worshiping the God of alcohol. Like that's going to get me through my problems. That is a lie from Babylon. That's a lie from Roma. I'm not drinking out of that cup because I know where that's going to lead me to, to opposition to the lamb. And I don't want to be opposed to the lamb. I want to be standing with him. Did you catch that at the end of verse 14? Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's you. Called. Called to what? Called to a higher purpose. And while it will be gloriously evident on that day when we stand with the Lamb, I think in this vision God has gifted you just a little three-point outline to what you're all supposed to be all about. You're going to be, you're called on that day, but if you're called on that day, guess what? You're called on this day. Called to a higher purpose. To to serve the Lord right where you are. Man, so often in life, we're like, when I get to the next place, the next thing, then I'll be able to, no, you serve God right where you are because 
If you're a follower of the Lamb, you are called to that higher purpose. You're holy. You're also chosen. The distinction here is that God has plucked you out of darkness and he has moved you into his kingdom, right? So he has chosen you to what end? Well, yes, to serve him right where you are, but specifically to serve him by standing apart from the culture in which you live. You have been chosen by God, which you can't explain. It's not because you're tall. (laughs) Write it down. It's not because you're tall, right? It's not because you're educated, it's not because you, you know, it's not because you come from the right family. No, it is solely a function of the grace of God. And every day, to his glorious praise, he is choosing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he is saving them. You're called, you're called to stand apart, and you're chosen to stand apart. Right now, not tomorrow, right now you're called to this end, and you're chosen for this end. Thirdly, when you're called, you're chosen, and you're faithful. Listen, when we're standing with the Lamb, it's visible proof that we have been faithful. Right now, I think maybe it's the question is, okay, so are you? Are you faithful? Are you maintaining your allegiance to the Lamb? I mean, it's hard in Rome, isn't it? There's just a lot of pressure. There's a lot of peer pressure. There's a lot of cultural pushback right now. Likely that will get, it's likely that will get worse. But if it gets worse, the question still remains. We're called and we're chosen, so will we be faithful? Will you be faithful? You might think, Pastor Ryan, it's so hard. I don't know if I have what I need. Well, this is where we can just kind of rest assured in our sure and steady anchor because God has gifted us what we need. You have the Spirit of God residing in you who never leaves. And we have the Word of God. And the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, equips us to be faithful. Right where we are, right now. So it's not just that you will be called, chosen, and faithful. Brothers and sisters, today, you're called, chosen, and equipped to be faithful. And when the world is judged, we'll finally see just how evil sin really is. Watch the end of the chapter. Pick it up in verse 15. He also said to me, the angel speaking to John again, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Meaning there is no end to the influence of Babylon. It's worldwide. There's no culture that's immune from this leaning towards idolatry. Verse 16, the ten horns you saw and the beast, well, they will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. Let's just acknowledge, this is kind of an unexpected part of this vision, because you got the woman riding the beast, and all the horns and everything, and all the kings, and they're all united against God, and you get this this idea, oh, they're going to be united, they're just going to go and oppose the Lamb, and they think they're all going to win. But the fact is, well, the fact is, when we worship false gods, it leads to self-destruction. And so here, at some point, the beast and the woman... They, they go against each other. And now all of a sudden we've got some kind of you know, conflict between the self-love of the woman and the self-love of the beast. And, and the beast is going to make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. She may have looked good at the beginning, but that scarlet dress and those jewels are going to be scattered around in the ashes when it's all said and done. Because that's what sin does. It's self-destructive. 
It'll eat you from within. It causes conflict and destruction. And what's, what, what's, what are we reading then? Well, verse 17, this is actually God's judgment on this wickedness. For God had put it into their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. This is why we can be optimistic because even in this judgment, when the system turns on itself and it gets ugly and the whole thing is shredded to, to bits and burned up, there's confidence that God's will is still being done. He's being shown to be great. Wicked is getting what it deserves. Wickedness is getting what it, it deserves. Evil's getting what it deserves. And the words of God will be fulfilled. So it's not like, oh, the wheels have come off or God's lost control or something like that. No, quite the contrary. Verse 18, finally here, and the woman you saw is the great city, Rome, right? That has royal power over the kings of the earth. In a sin-soaked culture, be distinct. Because sin is seductive, because sinners will be judged, and because sin is self-destructive. It's self-destructive. This vision of kind of the, the woman and the beast kind of, you know, devouring each other and the whole thing going down, again, it tells us a little bit about where culture's going. Apart from submission to Christ, culture's going down, okay? So we can't, we're not, we can't stop that, and we shouldn't stop that. We still want to witness and call people to repent, but, you know, we have to let the will of God be done in that sense. But the fact that it's part of God's sovereign plan means we can actually walk with confidence in the midst of a dark culture, it's okay that the culture is dark. We can serve God and be a light in it for the time that we're here, and we can be confident in His plan. And it's a motivator for purity for us, really. We can say no to the temptation because we're confident in the Lord. That love of self, man, it always ends up in destructive behavior. We see it here with the woman and the beast. But the fact is, you're tempted, and I'm tempted to love of self every day. And if you let that love of self go unchecked, just like everybody else does in Rome, in Babylon— if you let that love of self go unchecked, you know what's going to happen? It will reap destruction. I can't tell you, I just can't tell you how many families have been torn apart because the husband and the wife could not, could not get over their love of themselves. And they just wouldn't. They just wouldn't. And the culture says, you got to love yourself. Our culture says that. you got to love yourself. And Jesus says, true love lays down love for self, for the other. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't just say it, he showed us what it looks like. We've seen families torn apart, We've seen nations go to war with each other. You see, love of self always ends up in destructive behavior. It gets dressed up really pretty in our culture, but make no mistake, when it's all said and done, its ugliness will be evident to all. This deception can cost us so much. Brothers and sisters, we live, we live in a sin-soaked culture. But praise God, we are, we are called, we are chosen, and we are equipped to be faithful. Will you be distinct? You might think it doesn't seem like there's that much on the line. Well, you could have a conversation with Jack Whitaker, and he would tell you otherwise. Jack was someone who, later on in his life, for a Christmas ritual, they would play the lottery. And in 2002, on Christmas Day, Jack Whitaker won the Powerball lottery, which was $315 million. That was before inflation. It was, that was a lot back then, okay? That was a lot. 
And all of a sudden, Jack Whitaker had what everybody wants, right? Financial independence, luxury, and what everybody wants in our culture, what everybody wants, that ability to have what you want, to live where you want, to go and do the things you want. That's what we're chasing. And if everybody wants it, it can't be bad, right? So he's like, yes, he's made it. What everybody wants can't be bad, right? Later, Jack would say in an interview, I wish I'd torn up that ticket. What happened? Well, he did what any grandpa would do. He showered his family and friends with gifts. He shared his winnings. He was generous. Gave to those that he loved, including his granddaughter, Brandy. And he gave her, you know, a car. Gave her money and trips and she was having so much fun and gave her more money, but the fun to get the next thing, you know, you kind of go on to the next achievement, the next high, the next whatever, and all the fun starts to include a lot of alcohol, and then the fun starts to include a lot of drugs, a lot of drugs. He said in an interview that one time she literally told him, Papa, I just want drugs. Two years later, in 2004, they couldn't find her. They couldn't find her. After a two-week search, almost two years to the day after he won that lottery, they found his granddaughter, Brandy, dead, her body wrapped in a plastic sheet, dropped behind a van. No doubt a drug deal gone south. Sometimes sin looks good. It's attractive, and you think, I want it. I want it. But if we drink from that golden cup, we just have to be ready to face the consequences. Brothers and sisters, it is a sin-soaked culture that we live in, but we are called to be distinct. The question is, will we? Would you pray with me, and we'll ask God to help us. Lord, we pause this morning after walking through the details of Revelation chapter 17, which is so important for us, Lord, to see behind the veil of Babylon, Rome, Lord, our culture. And we pray that you would help us to be sobered. We pray that you would help us to see through the disguise that Satan sometimes puts forward We pray that you would help us to see the the seductiveness of sin and to be on alert spiritually. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that we we are called and we are chosen. And Lord, we are equipped to be faithful right now, to live distinctly in this world. Lord, we recognize that we may take heat for that, but we pray that you would help us to do so. Lord, even to the extreme, if it may mean some of the hardest circumstances we can imagine. But Lord, even if it's just mild discomfort and awkwardness, we pray that you would help us to be ready, to be distinct, to to live as Christians in this world. Lord, we thank you that our ultimate hope is secure because of your death on our behalf and your resurrection. Lord, we praise you, Lord Jesus, that as the Lamb, you are the Lord over lords, the King over all kings, and you will conquer evil, sin, and Satan once and for all. 
And Lord, as we look forward to that day, we pray that you would help us. Help us to shine as believers in a dark land. Help us to be used by you to grow your kingdom, to rescue other sinners. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to say no to temptation. Yes, so we could avoid some of those tragic consequences, but ultimately, Lord, for your glory. And we ask these things in confidence in you. And in the name of Jesus, amen.